Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right, welcome. Welcome back to, <laughs> Welcome back from your weekend. So let me tell you what we have coming up a little bit later on the show. Uh, and it is as follows. You may know that over the weekend, uh, Yale University played some other school at some Massachusetts-based... Uh, is it like an online school? I don't really know. Uh, anyway, they uh, played them. And then there was a big demonstration in the middle uh, of halftime. Uh, and it was about climate change. And also, to a certain degree, I think, forgiveness of Puerto Rican debt and uh, the plight of Uyghurs. I don't know if this sort of got fastened on, maybe. Uh, but it's, you know, maybe a, a little bit of the climate change protest movement among young people moving into uh, a new uh, phase and we're going to talk about that, talk about how it went on Saturday uh, with uh, one of the student organizers and Sam Waterston, who is uh, an alumni of Yale, I believe may hold their career record for most yardage and punt returns as well. Uh, and he's an actor. Did I say that part? Uh, anyway, he was part of the protest, too. I think he got arrested, which Sam is doing a lot of these days. Uh, and um, also maybe one of Sam's cows. I'm not 100 percent sure. We had to go through Sam's people and then through one of the cows' cows. So I don't know if we got the cow or not. Uh, and then a little bit later on the show, we are going to talk to – there is another impeachment going on right now, which you perhaps didn't know. Uh, the reason you don't know that, if you don't know that, is you perhaps do not follow carefully the student government of one particular American university, and that would be the University of Florida where they are in the process. I don't know if they've impeached him yet or not. We'll find that out. But they're trying to impeach the president of their student government. For essentially misusing money from student activity fees to pay Donald Trump Jr. a speaker's fee. Um, so that's, that's all to come. And then if things work out here in the first segment, uh, we'll also – here's the problem we have in the first segment. We're, we're going to talk about the case of Edward Gallagher, um, the uh, Navy SEAL, uh, whose own case has now started ripples running through uh, the U.S. Navy and through the White House. And obviously the president's gotten involved. And it, it's actually one of multiple cases involving war crimes or alleged war crimes in which the president has chosen to insert himself – in a rather un no, not a rather unusual way, a totally unusual way. He is the first president to do what he has done, which is to overturn war crime of it, war crimes verdicts. So, um, we hope to be talking pretty soon to Dave Phillips. Uh, here's the risk that you take: Dave Phillips is like the point man journalist on this story. Probably nobody in America is covering it as fully and as thoroughly as Dave Phillips is for the New York Times, uh, winner of a Pulitzer Prize for national reporting. The problem is that there's apparently some breaking news on this story too. So uh, our best laid plans, which are to have Dave right now uh, may not uh, come to fruition. If not, what I'll do is I'll sketch out this story the way that I understand it, and then I'll be uh, happy to take your phone calls until we're ready to go to the next segment. There are things that you might want to talk about or want to say uh, about this. All right. So this thing, this story has so many prongs to it, as many prongs as a trident, you might say. Um, and so let's begin there. So uh, one term that you'll hear over the course of this conversation is pull the trident, pull somebody's trident. What that means is the trident is a, a gold pin worn by Navy SEALs. Uh, you wore it, you wear it to your death and, and into your grave, uh, and it defines you, and it means that you are a Navy SEAL. Um, so um, 
Edward Gallagher, uh, one of the things that has been st- at stake with him is his trident. Um, the Some of the leaders of the Navy would like to remove that. Uh, they, some of the leaders of the Navy would like to preserve a military court verdict, which busted him in rank. Um, and uh, Donald Trump has seen fit to insert himself in that process on behalf of Edward Gallagher. He's also inserted himself on behalf of at least three other uh, U.S. servicemen convicted of or accused of war crimes. I believe that all the other three actually have been convicted. So just to give you the sense of, uh, of the Gallagher case, to the way that I understand it, and Dave Phillips understands it way much better, um, is that uh, it begins in Iraq, uh, where uh, at the end of a battle, um, a uh, some kind of building that was housing ISIS fighters has been dis- destroyed by a helicopter fighter fire, uh, and the survivor. There's one survivor, an alleged ISIS fighter, fighter who's a teenager, and he's got serious wounds. He's being attended to by a medic, uh, and. In the course of his being attended to by the medic, uh, Gallagher shows up there. He's the leader of this platoon, although he hasn't really been involved in the actual action. Uh, But he shows up there uh, and he, according to witnesses at the time, uh, he, uh, as this uh, teenage ISIS fighter was being attended to by a medic, he takes out a a hunting knife and stabs, uh, I think, more than once. I think it's agreed more than once he he stabs uh, this ISIS fighter, uh, and uh, what ensued was a, a trial um, in which, well, it was sort of like the inversion of a few good men by Aaron Sorkin. They basically had Gallagher. They had multiple witnesses prepared to testify, uh, and suddenly, without warning, in the trial, uh, the key witness, that medic I was talking about, who was sort of attending to this ISIS fighter, reversed himself and reversed himself into in a situation that Sorkin probably wouldn't have felt comfortable writing, um, and, um, and and said that not only did he no longer feel comfortable blaming Gallagher for the death of the soldier, but that he himself uh, was responsible. He'd put his thumb uh, over uh, an air hole, I think, and and suffocated or asphyxiated uh, this fighter who might have died anyway. But he didn't deny that Gallagher, in fact, he did testify to the fact that Gallagher had stabbed this wounded uh, uh, ISIS fighter. So um, uh, I now have on the line uh, Dave Phillips, national correspondent covering veterans and the military for the New York Times, winner of a Pulitzer Prize for national reporting, knows this story way better than I do. Uh, I was just doing my best to sort of set the scene. You did a great job. I was was doing okay, I guess. So uh, I'll let you take over. I just I think it's worth spending a moment or two on what the Gallagher case is because if you just read about it in passing, you know, of these three recently pardoned guys, he's the one who didn't have a heavyweight conviction sitting on him. And if you don't read like your reporting, Dave Phillips, you don't understand how close he came to having a murder conviction. I mean, going into the trial until this change of heart, this last-minute change of testimony by this witness, prosecutors just assumed they had something resembling an open-and-shut case, correct? Right, and he was looking at uh, life in prison if he'd been convicted of that stabbing. Uh, not uh, that was the maximum, but still, like it was very serious, and I think that the uh, Navy brass all thought that that the verdict was going to be guilty. And so there was noticeable shock when uh, Eddie Gallagher walked out of there uh, <laughs> and didn't leave in handcuffs. 
Right. Military justice works a little bit differently or maybe a lot differently than civilian justice. One difference is that uh, not only does the jury, which is in this case made up of sort of comparable military service people, uh, not only do they decide innocence or guilt, but they can decide any penalty, right? They they can. I, I think they have a range. Yeah. Uh, they certainly they have a maximum range. But there's another important difference that uh, I know figures into the Gallagher case. So in in civilian law, if you don't have a unanimous verdict, uh, that's that's a, a mistrial. And and here, if you don't have a unanimous verdict, it's not guilty. Uh, so. Um, it doesn't mean that there weren't people who were absolutely convinced of Gallagher's guilt on that jury panel. It just means that there wasn't enough. Right. Um, so let's let's sort of park that for a second. You've got that case. You've got uh, his punishment is essentially four months time served. Um, and he gets the only thing he's really uh, convicted of is conduct unbecoming or however it's phrased there it has to do with right. posing posing for this picture with said dead ISIS fighter uh, and he gets busted down a rank. Um, now meanwhile, and maybe we can set up a parallel track here, there's another thing that's starting to go on which is an overarching reform movement of the Navy SEALs. Uh, a certain admirable admiral has been brought in to, to see if um, uh, what seems to be kind of a pattern uh, of misconduct and, and maybe worse than misconduct in the SEALs can be addressed and corrected. Tell us about that. Right. So uh, the same week, I believe, that that Eddie Gallagher gets arrested, a new uh, admiral takes control of the, of the SEALs. It's Rear Admiral Colin Green. And this, this guy's a, a Navy Academy grad. He's been in the SEALs his entire adult life. Um, and when he gets into the top job, I think one of the things that he really sees need to help is uh, like accountability and ethics. There's been a number of high profile uh, issues of, of drug use, of um, uh, SEALs getting arrested, of some SEALs getting charged with murdering uh, an Army Green Beret uh, overseas. Uh, all this is coming out in the press. And, and to him, uh, this is has become a central issue. Uh, he frames it in terms of uh, being able to get the mission done. Yes, training is important. Yes, like being able to hit the target is important. But as important is is accountability and ethics. Because if you don't have teams that can operate and operate lawfully, uh, pretty soon you're not going to get missions done. And so he was very vocal in saying, I'm going to reform this. Uh, we're going to hold people accountable. We're not going to look the other way. We're even going to start tightening down on all the little stuff that we used to slide, you know, like beards and haircuts, uniform standards, you know, thinking that that everybody kind of needed to be put in time out uh, to get notice that that whatever might have been done in the past, we can't do anymore. So one of the things that he would like to do uh, ultimately is, and I defined the term, I think, before you got on the line, is pull the trident uh, of, uh, right. of Eddie Gallagher. Right. Um, he, he'd like to remove, uh, remove him from the service of the SEALs, which apparently he has something approaching total discretion. I mean, as an admiral, admiral in charge of the SEALs, he can decide who is a SEAL and who isn't. Uh, that's right. You know, it's, it's a lot like going to... Uh, uh, a civilian job. You know, you can't think of this as, as judicial punishment. It's, it's should you be fired over the, the stuff that you're convicted of outside of, of work is, is kind of how he looks at it. So the admiral, uh, generally speaking, uh, gets to make the call on this. 
and um, he can form a board of SEAL to make a recommendation. He does not have to. Um, and he decides, you know, if I don't trust someone because I think they're they're ethically compromised or they're, you know, like tactically not good enough to be a SEAL, I can kick them out. And in fact, it's my duty to because we've got to operate at a very high level. Um, so he sees Gallagher after the trial and says, this guy does not deserve to be a SEAL. Uh, he's got a criminal conviction. Uh, they also had evidence that he was, was uh, buying drugs and getting his one of his junior enlisted SEALs' moms to buy him drugs. Um, and uh, it, not the type of guy he wanted to be training SEALs, mentoring SEALs. He wanted him out. All right. So, Dave, there's sort of a – let's put out a third rail to our conversation, but not a third rail. So there, there's an, another movement afoot, and it's kind of the opposite kind of movement. And it has partisans on Fox News. There's a host – I think his name, his name is Pete Hegseth. Uh, there's an uh, organization called United American Patriots, which is a nonprofit that basically exists to support soldiers who are accused of war crimes, uh, and um, including, in fact, uh, Eddie Gallagher. Um, and And starting in May, if not earlier, also President Trump. In May, he becomes the first modern president to pardon a person convicted of war crimes. That's a guy named Michael Behenna, a former Army lieutenant who'd been convicted of killing a prisoner in Iraq. Uh, And then more recently, he jumps in to three other cases, including Gallagher's. So, uh, Dave, just tell us a little bit what's going on here. There seems to be a conversation that's taking place at multiple sites on multiple shows in multiple places about this idea that what that that you can't hold soldiers accountable the way yeah. Aaron Sorkin would like them held accountable. The the real instrumental guy here is a guest host on Fox and Friends named Pete Hegseth, uh, and Hegseth was a, a platoon leader in the army during the Iraq War. Uh, he was in a brigade where there had been um, soldiers who were uh, court-martialed for killing um, Iraqis illegally. Now, now to be clear, Pete Hegseth was not. Uh, implicated in any of that. He wasn't near it, but certainly he would have been aware of it at that time. And uh, for years, for uh, at least five years, uh, he has beat the drum of uh, championing convicted uh, war criminals, saying, look, it's unfair to uh, prosecute these guys. We asked them to go over and do an impossible job. Uh, they made split level deci- or split second decisions trying to do the right thing, and now a bunch of pencil pushers and lawyers back home uh, uh, want to punish them for it. Now, oftentimes uh, the facts have have not really backed up the very simple uh, caricatures he makes of these cases. You know, there's premeditation. Oftentimes these these people are being turned in by their own men, who certainly have the best uh, knowledge of what took place. But he has been relentless in, in pushing this. What really wasn't an issue in the, the, not even the mainstream media, but even the right-wing media at all, was really brought in by uh, Pete Hegseth. And Hegseth has a personal relationship with, with President Trump. They have eaten dinner together on at least one occasion. They tweet to each other. They speak on the phone. And, and he has been the one who's gone around all of the... Uh, uh, Pentagon bureaucracy and spoken directly to the president saying, these guys are being treated wrong. Uh, They're being prosecuted for just trying to do their jobs. And you, Mr. President, need to do something. So he does do something. And sort of in the middle of the impeachment hearings, uh, he suddenly uh, pardons these two other guys. 
And, and in the case of Gallagher, what he does, if I understand it, is he mainly reverses the, the, the cut in, in grade, the cut in rank, right? That, that's his main right. step? Right, right. And that, uh, interestingly, is how we got here, because President Trump issues a quote-unquote full pardon to two soldiers, but with Gallagher, he just uh, reinstates his rank, makes no statement about guilt or innocence. And the leaders of the SEAL teams, Admiral Green and others, they see that and they think it's sort of a tacit message to them saying, hey, this guy's still guilty of what he did, uh, and therefore you're, you're well within your, your authority to, to take away his trident or, or otherwise administratively punish him. So they've been waiting, sort of watching, um, wanting to take this trident, and they see that as, as the green light. Um, and in fact, they at that point they reach out to the White House, all the way up to uh, reportedly to the, the White House Chief of Staff, saying, "Hey, we're going to do this. Uh, is that cool?" And and they get the message back, "Yes, go ahead." Uh, and so they do formally notify Gallagher, "Hey, we're going to pull your trident." And within 24 hours, the president tweets out, uh, "No, you're not," and essentially shuts it down. Right. And so this story is kind of continuing to evolve in, in that direction, I think, with even more affirmative statements of that kind from President Trump. Uh, meanwhile, it also gets really complicated at higher levels, uh, particularly as regards uh, Navy Secretary Richard Spencer, who apparently is not exactly traveling the same path uh, as Admiral Green. He kind of has maybe a different way out of this morass. Yeah, so I, my understanding of, of leading up to the decision to, to uh, take Gallagher's trident, uh, the, the Navy, the SEAL commander works all the way up the Navy chain of command saying, hey, I plan to do this, because he doesn't want to broadside them. He knows that it's going to be controversial. And everybody signs off on it, and they brief the White House. Uh, I think they told him, look, this is your call. It's your command. Like, just within our normal way of doing things, you should have authority over this. So they all buy off on it. I think to a certain extent, then, they were in the same boat, knowing they might get blowback, but believing it's the right thing to do. Um, When President Trump tweets saying, no, I disagree, stop this right now, uh, Spencer's kind of put in a tough place. And he uh, publicly, though gently, says, well, you know, if the president wants to give me a formal order, we'll follow it. We haven't gotten that yet. And I think pulling the trident is the right thing to do. Well, so and and so there are other things going on. I, I, we're going to run out of time, and also this is a really busy day for you. So I want to go <laughs> a, a little bit forward. I'm so grateful you're taking just a few more minutes here to talk about this. So I mean, going forward, I mean, I think most people know since then Spencer is now uh, out. Uh, apparently, out. yeah, apparently pushed out by the Secretary of Defense, maybe because he was pursuing kind of an, a parallel track, or maybe a compromise. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit about just this level of confrontation uh, between uh, President. President Trump, the, the, the leader uh, of civilian oversight of the military and the military. Before you got on, I was saying this is kind of the, once again, the upside down of what we usually think about. I think at least I, in my benighted way, would usually think that the, the, the military wants to do what it wants to do and it wants to do what it thinks it needs to do to win a war or a battle or whatever. And civilian oversight 
usually exists to put the brakes on all this. This seems to be a complete reversal of this. This is The military seems interested in policing itself, separating bad apples from good apples, having good apples pursue uh, with, with rules and accountability uh, the missions of the military, and civilian oversight say, no, no, the bad apples are fine. That's right. That's right. And so it's making a lot of people's heads spin. Like you can imagine that the normal uh, sort of liberal talking heads who might be talking about the importance of civilian rule over the military they'll find themselves sticking up for, for uh, the military and vice versa. It's, it's really strange, and I think that, that uh, even the most sort of people who are most careful about their opinions uh, that are experts here worry that it is, is eroding things, because the, the civilian leadership of the military is based on uh, uh, relationship of trust that I think is more delicate than we'd like to admit. Uh, and we've kept it going for uh, several centuries, and it's it's been to the mutual benefit of all. But certainly, if if people no longer feel that they they can have an honest uh, and and productive uh, relationship, they're going to start hiding things or or trying to manipulate each other. Uh, Experts are certainly like really worried about this. Right. And, and you know, the Times did a terrific editorial. I know you don't write editorials about moral injury. That, that notion of a pervasive message, as you're saying, that, that gets sent and the message that we would hope would typically get sent would get sent would be play by the rules, uh, um, you know, stand, follow procedure, uh, be outstanding and upstanding in your field, and you will be rewarded more uh, than people who depart whenever possible from the rules. Uh, right. uh, this, these two groups, interestingly, well, the, the group that Gallagher's part of, part of has self-identified as the pirates and calls the other kinds of people, the Admiral Green people, the Boy Scouts. Well, I mean, the moral inj- part of the moral injury now is you might be better off under certain circumstances being a pirate than a Boy Scout. Or at least what people in the SEALs worry about is that if you don't like what happens to you, you can go on Fox and complain to the president and, and maybe you can get out of it. Right. So, well, well, we'll leave it there unless there's something else you want to tell us. I know this is a fast-breaking story, which you're, yeah. you're trying to catch up with. Yeah, I would just say, like, stay tuned. There's probably more uh, shoes to drop. All right. Great reporting, uh, Dave Phillips, and thanks so much. I know it's a super busy day. Uh, Thanks for finding the time for us. Thanks very much. Take care. Okay. So um, there'll be more to come from us on that one, too. So, uh, And I should tell you, have I announced this yet? I think I haven't, really. So although this is not necessarily 100% germane to that, but uh, starting on December 7th at noon, uh, we are going to launch a broadcast slash podcast that's uh, existing mainly for the what we might call the impeachment season. Uh, so for as long as proceedings go in, on in the House and then presumably subsequently in the Senate and <laughs> the, who knows what happens after that. Tanks uh, up and down Pennsylvania Avenue. I don't know. As long as this goes on anyway, we're going to do a weekly a special weekly show called Pardon Me, uh, where we'll review everything that happened during the week and, and try to maybe uh, make some of the cultural tie-ins as well. We understand things these days as politics, history, and as culture. Um, and that's all I'm going to say about it for now. But anyway, it'll be on noon at noon on Saturday starting December 7th, and it'll be a podcast as well. All right, let's take a break, and then we're going to talk about that the thing that happened at that game between Yale and the, whatever that place is in Massachusetts. It's like an online university, I think.
Okay, we're back. As promised, we're now going to talk about the uh, football game uh, that took place over the course of the weekend. Uh, I'm sure there were other football games as well. I just don't know what they were. Uh, but uh, obviously, Yale played Harvard. Uh, this is always a big event. Uh, Yale Bowl fills up uh, with thousands and thousands of people. So it's a good time to try to get somebody's attention. Uh, and uh, that's exactly what happened uh, during halftime. A group of protesters, me in the main, concerned with climate change, um, uh, disrupted the halftime show and stayed out there on the field for a while. But uh, why should I tell this story when I have one of the participants here with me joining us is Joseph Winters, a student organizer for Fossil Fuel Divest Harvard. Also with us, uh, one of the other people there uh, uh, as part of the protest, uh, Sam Waterston, actor, uh, alumni of Yale, Connecticut farmer, and now serial arrestee. Um, But uh, Joseph Winters, I'm going to start with you uh, and uh, just tell us a little bit more. Uh, First of all, tell us what the plan and the motivation was, what what was supposed to happen and, and why. Yeah, uh, thanks so much for having me. Um, we, uh, with Fossil Fuel Divest Harvard, joined together with uh, Fossil Free Yale and their Endowment Justice Coalition to call on our institutions to divest their endowments, which together um, have some $70 billion from the fossil fuel industry, um, and to reinvest it in, in ways that are more socially and environmentally sustainable. Um, now, one thing that you can always do about this is you can write strongly worded letters to the uh, editor of the Harvard Crimson, or I don't know, I mean, with, for any kind of protest, you can assemble somewhere in some public space. You decided to do something a little bit more, right? When, when you do something like, um, you know, come out onto the field during the Harvard-Yale game halftime with the expectation of getting arrested, you're kind of, does that feel to you like you're kind of moving now into phase two of protesting? Absolutely. Yeah, this feels like a, a totally new chapter in our organization. Um, we have spent a lot of time trying to engage with the university through every channel available to us. We've had referenda um, where the student body has voted overwhelmingly in favor of disclosure, divestment and reinvestment. We've had petitions circulate through our alumni networks and um, in the students as well. Um but the university has has refused to listen to these sort of sorts of calls for for action and and to engage with us in any sort of meaningful discussion about um, the topic of divestment. And so we saw this game as a strategic opportunity to um, take the concentrated media attention that that we knew to expect and and use it to make a statement that you know we love to get together and watch a football game and have a lot of fun, but the status quo is unacceptable while Harvard and Yale are profiting from the degradation of our future. Um, Only we see, you know, these kinds of escalations are the only way to force the universities um, to listen to our demands. All right. Uh, I want to come back to that, and I want to come back to a little bit more about what happened. But uh, Sam Waterston is here on the other line. Uh, Sam, welcome back to our show. Thank you. Nice to be here. So how did you get involved? And and tell me why. I know you've been um, uh, getting arrested a little bit these days. Yes, and and getting arrested a little bit uh, makes it possible for the two parts of your brain that have been holding these things apart to come together. And you realize that what you've been thinking and talking about is actually true, that this is a climate emergency. And so action must be taken. Actually, right around the corner from our apartment in New York is a quote from Greta Thunberg that I think sums it all up, which is that what we need now, even more than hope, is action. And what I think these young people uh, 
you know, a, a person like me really is only in a position to point. These young people are doing an extraordinary service to us all by inviting us to let our minds tell us what they what we have been failing to face and to and to imagine that we can actually do something about this while there's time to do it and so that's why I was there and and so Joseph Winters um tell us a little bit more what about what happened you went out there there what were what initially maybe 150 of you uh, and then you got spontaneously joined by other people yeah um the response was totally unprecedented. We, uh, you know, to me, it seemed like we had contingency plans for every possible scenario that could have happened. Um, but none of those contingency uh, situations involved overwhelming support from the audience. Um, I, so we were on the field for maybe five or 10 minutes. And then um, I remember it very clearly, there was this pivotal moment where over the PA system, Country Roads by John Denver came on and we started uh, chanting cancel the debt, which is a very catchy uh, and then um, some 350 people rush onto the uh, onto the field with us and sat down with us and started chanting. It was it was incredible, such a beautiful moment. Um, and and uh, you know, uh, obviously there are going to be grumpy alumni uh, who are up there in the stands. They just want to see the football game, which wound up going into double overtime, which meant it was going to be long anyway. Y- you guys uh, made it longer in the middle. People's DVRs got messed up. <laughs> I've been told people who have planning to DVR the game it didn't work out. So I mean, there is that risk, right? That you're going to make more people angry uh, than you are going to convert people. I- I'd be interested in hearing what both of you have to say about that. But Joseph, why don't you start? What about the risk of just pe- people going, oh, well, those people, they're jerks. They ruined my my Saturday afternoon. Yeah, we thought very uh, carefully about um, our decision to disrupt the game. And this is why we did it during halftime instead of actually trying to shut down the game. You know, our messaging is that nobody wins when Harvard and Yale are invested in, in the companies that are perpetrating the climate crisis. But, um, you know, we extend empathy to the audience members. Um, we know that they are absolutely not responsible for Harvard and Yale's investment policies. But um, in the end, I think that we had the support of the, the overwhelming majority of the audience, including the players and um, uh, several band members and the cheerleading team. I don't think that that you can argue that um, the livability of the, of the, of the planet is an issue that that can just be deferred to some moment when nobody's watching. The point of a protest is to concentrate media attention and raise awareness. And I and I don't think that the game was disrupted in in a way that ruined anyone's experience. All right. And so, um, Sam, before you go, I'm going to play for you a clip. You'll be shocked to hear that uh, Fox News found a Harvard student, a conservative student, a Harvard student who. Uh, who didn't, uh, who was not thrilled by the protest. Uh, let's hear what he had to say on Fox News. I have to say most people were pretty nonplussed. Uh, the protest was pretty poorly planned. Most of my friends were just irked, very annoyed that they got their time taken away from them. But our biggest takeaway, for the most part, was that this was just another empty political activist thing that liberals tend to do on big days. They pick our favorite day and then they do whatever they want with it. I have to say it's really quite annoying. I don't think the protest accomplished much. So Sam Waterston, about how how about that? How do we just we decide whether a protest accomplished much? Well, uh, the Harvard Yale game is an important uh, tradition, and it shouldn't be lightly interrupted. And I so 
you know, for the people who felt interrupted, um, we were not happy to have to interrupt them. But I, I must say, the analogy for me is like a family Thanksgiving gathering where everybody is around the table in the house. And even if you're at the children's table, which many of the policemen treated the protesters as the children, you know, that they had to now get up and behave like grown-ups and leave the field. Even if you're at the children's table, if the house is burning down, you would interrupt the Thanksgiving dinner. And I think that's what these young people did, and I think that it was entirely justified. So nobody wants to interrupt anybody's uh, good time, but but this is this is a climate emergency, and action has to be taken. Sam, uh, this is the second time that I know of recently that you've done something like this uh, on October 18th at a climate change protest outside the U.S. Capitol in D.C., along with uh, your former your co-star in uh, Grease and Frankie, Jane Fonda. You got arrested. Is this uh, is this something you expect is going to be a, a, a part of your life going forward? No, and it's an interesting point you raise because um, the the thing that happens if you feel obliged to act on something is that you are almost instantaneously categorized as an activist. Uh, like you, you have been turned into a radical. I am in no sense a radical. What I think is that the situation is radical. And so ordinary people, and I count myself as being among that number, are called upon to do extraordinary things because it's, an, it's a radical moment. Well, so Joseph Winders, uh, both uh, Harvard and Yale said, you know what? We hadn't really thought about this before. They've got a good point. We're going to change everything. No, not really, right? You you still didn't get the response that, uh, or even maybe even the beginnings of a response. Do you think you got anything out of the Harvard administration in terms of the uh, the demands you're making? I don't think we got anything, any material gains. Uh, you know, immediately the Harvard and Yale didn't announce their divestment overnight. Um but I, I do think that we made huge uh, steps towards getting the university's attention. Um, we, in the past two days, we've had 1.5 million responses on Twitter. Um, we've had news coverage from the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, NPR, all these um, big media outlets. We were trending number one on Twitter. I think that the point is is to get people's uh, attention and, and for them to realize that um, the status quo is is not acceptable until uh, Harvard and Yale take a meaningful climate action. And you know, even if they did divest, it's part of a broader narrative. You know, we want we want these universities to take, you know, broad, transformative climate action that goes that goes much deeper than simply divesting from fossil, the fossil fuel industry. But that that is the first step. Um, if they're going to to promote if they're going to try and take themselves as leaders in the environmental. Um, movement they need to they need to do this uh first step and they need to do it immediately you know sam go ahead sam broadly speaking institutions in general need to be much much more responsive and what are ordinary people to do if their institutions are dragging their feet about something which is such an existential threat to us all we must act that's the message and when harvard and yale have have begun to do the right thing in a better and bigger way than they are already, um, that won't be the end of it. This will just be a part of trying to get our institutions to respond to the need. 
Um, I, I think we're going to end there, although there's one thing that, uh, that I wanted to say, too, because I've, I've heard from a number of grumpy uh, Yale alumni today about the disruption of the football game. And, you know, I mean, I, I like Yale football, and my college roommate, Ken Jennings, was on the football team. But I always sort of say to alumni of places like Yale and Harvard, I hope you didn't go there for the football, right? Because you really could have gotten a cheaper education at like Nebraska or Clemson, you know, or Auburn and had like a really good football team. I assume you went to Yale or Harvard so you'd get smarter and you'd understand more of your world and understand more of moral and scientific imperatives so that you'd become the kind of person who would understand the, the, the crisis of climate change earlier than a lot of people. So if you're just sitting there grumping about the fact that that it took an hour for the second half to start or something, it's kind of, you might've actually missed the whole point of your education, which would be very, very sad. All right. That's my soapbox. Sam, you have anything left that you need to say? Just also that that is something, there is something that you, an alumni, alumnus can do about this. And now is the time to do it. Right. Uh, Joseph Winters, a, a final word. What's your, do you know what your next step here is? Um, we are still, uh, you know, celebrating and reeling from this uh, huge action. Um, I think that it's part of our larger narrative, which is, um, at least for Harvard, we're demanding that they disclose, divest, and fully um, reinvest all of their holdings in the fossil fuel industry by Earth Day 2020. And this is um, just one escalation in a series uh, of escalations until Earth Day 2020. All right. Sounds workable. Uh, Joseph Winder, student organizer for Fossil Fuel Divest Harvard. Sam Waterston, actor, uh, alumnus of Yale, Connecticut farmer, and serial arrestee. Uh, thank you very much for being with us today, both of you. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. All right. And we're going to take a little break right now and we're going to come back and we're going to tell you about the other impeachment. Yes. It's sort of like pork, the other white meat. This is the other. (laughs) That's a really bad analogy. Anyway, the other impeachment. Just leave it at that. We're back. I forgot to, to write the thing where Wolfie tells you who did everything. So I'll, I'll tell you that. First of all, Kyle and Wolf is on the board today, making everything sound great, picking out all that music and stuff. Uh, the senior producer of this episode, the ep- producer of this episode is senior producer Betsy Kaplan. That's better. Uh, she is the uh, producer of today's uh, episode. Also with us, our intern, the mighty Kevin. Uh, and who else? And well, Matt Dwyer, who's about to start producing other wheelhouses, just uh, sitting in, uh, overseeing what we do. Uh, and I should say, we'll be back with a lot live wheelhouse on Wednesday. We're so excited. And then on Wednesday also, we'll be back with a live nose. We usually do that on Fridays, but because of the Thanksgiving weekend, we're going to give you an early nose. And we're we're all re- signed up with Disney Plus, which we all feel so good about. Uh, and, and we were watching The Mandalorian. Keep wanting to call it something else. I have a hard time with that name. It doesn't just doesn't come to mind. But anyway, it's the latest Star Wars iteration. Uh, we'll be talking about that uh, from a critical perspective and other stuffs as well. Okay, enough announcements, and I think that's everything. 
Um, so uh, we're going to now talk about, I promised you, the other impeachment, and you might be a little bit mystified. And if that's so, you just don't follow enough of the news from the student government at the University of Florida. Uh, and joining us now is Zachariah Chow, a senator in said student government at the University of Florida. Uh, he's written an op-ed piece for the New York Times and has been part uh, of a group of students initiating impeachment proceedings against the student body president, Michael Murphy. Zachariah Chow, welcome to our show. Howdy, howdy. Thanks for having me. Uh, and thanks for being here. So uh, explain uh, the, the purpose of this doesn't involve Ukraine this time, I don't think. Uh, so w- why, why are you seeking a set impeachment? Well, it does involve uh, sums of money that should or should not be moving. Um, so what happened was that uh, Donald Trump Jr. and uh, crew came to the University of Florida on October 10th to speak um, to the fine, humble tune of $50,000. Um, so that's a lot of money. So, of course, uh, everyone had their concerns there. Um, so previously, we'd known about our student body presidents, um, kind of like conflicts of interest. Like, we know he's a partisan guy. Like, he goes to the White House to meet with Betsy DeVos, um, went to the inauguration with our Senate president, Emily Dunson. His father's a lobbyist who maxed out campaign contributions uh, to the Trump re-election campaign. So we knew all those conflicts of interest. And then it got even worse from there on. Um, because we found via public records request that um, a veteran a Republican fundraiser who had been working for the Trump like re-election committee like reached out to him and be like, hey, I'd like to bring Donald Trump Jr. and Kimberly Cofile and RNT co-chair like Hicks um, to like UF. So everyone was like, oh my gosh, like collusion, um, bad, dark money moving to places where it shouldn't. And then like after the whole event, like you saw Donald Trump Jr. speaking at other universities universities not for fifty thousand dollars so everyone was like oh gosh this looks terrible uh, and we need um, some accountability more evidence on the table um, to let everything come to light right we should probably mention it's my understanding anyway um, Senator Chow that this fifty thousand dollars was derived from a mandatory student activity fee so in other words this isn't for sometimes when people speak on campus and they get a big uh, big number a big fee out of it uh, it might be a local foundation or something like that or some other way that the university came up with money out of maybe its own fund for speaking fees this is money as I understand it that all of you students are essentially required to cough up for a variety of purposes? Yes, it's a, analogous to taxes. So if you don't want your tax money going to different um, partisan causes, you'd be just as concerned um, about this sort of thing happening on a, car, uh, on a college campus. And I mean, like, some of it is, like, very literally tax money, too, because um, the state of Florida has a scholarship that supports a lot of the student um, at the University of Florida called Bright Futures, and that's paid by, like, tax money and so, like, it kind of is, and it, like, figuratively and literally, like, public funds. So, is there a natural impeachment process? Uh, is there something written into the student constitution about how you get rid of your student body president? Yeah, and uh, unfortunately, we've already derived from that process, uh, possibly. So, um, typically, like, you submit the impeachment resolution to the impeachment body chair, which also happens to be our Senate president, um, and then, you know, you have a hearing, and that's what happened the last time this happened, which was about 10 years ago in 2009. Um, but this time, we thought it was appropriate, or the Senate president thought it was appropriate to send it to the Senate Judiciary Committee for review. Um, and personally, I know the Senate Judiciary Committee to be a place where like good ideas go to die because it's completely 
um, comprised of the majority party. So there's not a single minority party senator on there. So, of course, they're like, yeah, they killed it in like five minutes. But then we were fighting them, saying that they shouldn't have never sent it to the Judiciary Committee because, first of all, we didn't consent for our resolution to be sent there. And it probably didn't happen in 2009 because if that happened in 2009, they would have never gone to a hearing as they did back then as well. Um, so we're fighting over that. And very conveniently, our Senate has been canceled uh, we meet every weekly. We 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 meet weekly on Tuesday nights, but it was canceled tomorrow. Canceled last week. Um, you know they're just trying to have this blow over and kill the resolution. And um, one of the side effects of them trying to kill the resolution in judiciary, uh, since we'll fight them on this and take them to the Supreme Court, is that um, a group of other students started a recall um, effort as well. So um, lots of moving different parts around here at the University of Florida. Yeah, and so once again, just to make sure people understand this, so what happened was uh, Donald uh, Trump Jr. came in uh, along with uh, Kimberly Guilfoyle uh, and uh, gave a speech. Um, and and was he allegedly? He's got a book out called "Triggered: How the Left Thrives on Hate and Wants to Silence Us." Um, and as you say, he'd been speaking at other places: Grand Canyon University, Colorado State University, at UCLA. And in those cases, there weren't speaking. Fees fees or student fees used to pay him. Uh, was was the understanding that he was there uh, at your university to promote his book? Well, there's reality and there is what the attorney that our student body pros- president has um, promoted. So in reality, he barely talked about the book. And I have audio recording from the um, event, you know, a transcript. There's like two mentions of the book and that's it. Um, brief mentions. Um, so in reality, it was just a partisan boxing match um, in there, you know, just Democrats bad, typical type of thing. But their attorney in trying to um, kind of like maneuver away um, against our um, accusations of um, financial impropriety of a partisan nature, he was like, oh, well, it's a book event. And if it's a book event, then we have all these different universities and, you know, I guess like Costco and some of the other places that Donald Trump Jr. has been going for like book events to be able to compare it. And like when we saw... Um, Trump Jr. at UCLA, Grand Canyon University, Colorado State University, like same deal. Him, significant other, um, Charlie Kirk was, Kirk was around, but they didn't get paid fifty thousand dollars. Right. So that's like the it's not a million dollar question, but fifty thousand dollar question of like, okay, so like we have a similar event here, or a purportedly similar event, um, but somehow we ended up paying fifty thousand dollars for something that is otherwise. Um, relatively free in terms of speaking fees. But of course, like the universities, the other universities also ended up footing like venue and security fees as well. But that's marginal compared to this huge sum that we paid in speaking fees. Right. So you paid a lot of money for what was essentially, in your view, uh, a a political event, uh, an opportunity for the family member of uh, the the White House family to come in and basically lay out some talking points, some position points. You don't feel as though your money should be used that way. Tell me why uh, you think, I think, by the way, uh, in a lovely turn of phrase, what did you call Donald Trump Jr. an empty banana? Banana stand in the marketplace uh, yeah, of ideas. Barren banana stand in the marketplace of ideas. Um, because like yeah. we have like prominent like conservative commentators like Ben Shapiro come by, um, and you know we paid him and stuff. But like Donald Trump Jr. like he's not the academic type to put it nicely. Right. So he's got more of a counterpuncher, not a guy who's really participating uh, in, in in an idea-driven debate. So why why did you think this is important beyond the campus of the University of Florida? How how does it, it its importance spread out uh, to other places? 
I mean, this this whole thing was kind of like facilitated by like a veteran fundraiser for like the Trump's re-election campaign. So once again, it's public funds and someone paid taxes at some place to make all this possible. Um, so there's that. But I think this is also extremely important for the greater public to know because it kind of like draws back the veil a little bit on kind of like the hidden machinery that um, you see. I, I'm just going to say Republicans use um, to like get people in power. And you had like Rick Scott come out come out after all this calling like michael murphy like a rising star um and a lot of the students here who go through student government will go into like politics so for example which i thought was really funny is that the guy that almost got impeached 10 years ago that student body president he actually went on to work in the rick scott administration um <laughs> so you can see that this is like all like connected here and and i mean our old student body president um another one is uh, currently the agricultural secretary of the state of florida um i know um earlier this year um, someone went on to work in the Trump administration and they got a little bit of news coverage because it was noted by our newspaper back when they were at UF that, it, that they had actually participated in a newspaper dumping scheme uh, when the newspaper endorsed their opposite party. So um, these people are going to go out there and become real bad politicians in the real bad world. Um, so that's why accountability, even at the college level, is so important because this is so intrinsically tied to federal, state, local politics. Like we even have like lobbying groups. Uh, coming in and whining and dining our people and flying them to DC and beyond. It's um, hard to believe, but there is a pipeline and people have to be aware that that's um, the way things are. All right. We have to stop there. But Zachariah Chow is a senator in the student government at the University of Florida, where they have attempted to uh, impeach the president of the student body for using money from student activity fees to pay for an appearance by Donald Trump Jr. and his significant other, Kimberly Guilfoyle. So with all that, once again, a reminder, uh, we're live with the wheelhouse on Wednesday morning. We're live with the nose on Wednesday afternoon. And then get ready uh, for starting December 7th. Pardon me a new kind of Colin McEnroe show byproduct. It's going to be a weekly show and podcast uh, about the impeachment era that we're living in right now. Uh, all right. So thanks once again to everybody who helped out today, especially senior producer Betsy Kaplan for booking all these great guests. 